it was a family of queens and the owners who took you in like family. So I felt understood. I mean, when <laughs> when I would drink so much that I would fall down and slide under my car, they'd take my keys away. You know, um, when I was maybe a little bit overserved, you know, they they definitely would hug me and pull me to the side and be like, okay, you know, uh, and, and then jab you and tease you. And <laughs> well, of so, course, I mean, like, like sisters, y- like sisters. <laughs> Hello, I am Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. My guest on this week's show is Mrs. Kasha Davis, who came to international fame after appearing in season seven of RuPaul's Drag Race. Before Drag Race, she was one of the main performers at Mother's, a bar in Rochester, New York. We caught up to talk about Angry White Poodles, the Ethel Merman disco album, which you need to listen to if you haven't already, and some of her memories from her early days in drag. So I grew up in Scranton and I went to college in Scranton and I stayed in the closet in Scranton. This is the seventies and eighties. And it was a time when, you know, you really, I joke in, in my shows, you know, Elton John and Barry Manilow were straight and <laughs> indeed they were, you know, as much as they may have looked flamboyant and Liberace, you know, these, these, these very flamboyant, obviously feminine men were staying in the closet. And, you know, the, part of that's the entertainment industry, but it was also this small town where there was no such thing as gay. And if you were, it was the 80s at that point, so people were afraid you were just going to die yeah. because of the AIDS epidemic. And so it's, it was, if you're gay, you, you'll die. And it was sort of like, that's what ignorant people would say and or that was what the news was portraying. And so... I mean, I was even involved in a ballet company and I was involved in theater and there was no one gay. Like even the very, very obviously gay people were in the closet. And um, so I ended up marrying the first woman who would say yes. And she was, we did fall in love. She was the, I, we were high school sweethearts. And uh, for obvious reasons, that marriage didn't work out. Um, and at that time of that divorce, that was around the time when I moved to, to Rochester because I had been working for a company that I was getting promoted within and they gave me two options, Erie, Pennsylvania or Rochester, New York. And my friend and I got in the car specifically to go to the gay bar in Erie. Um, and as soon as we went, we were like, no, no this no. is it. No, this is just like Scranton. You know, it was Pennsylvania... Um, it was a little bit bigger, maybe, but it was like, this doesn't feel like 
basically didn't feel like going, I was going to college is what coming out felt like for me at that point. Cause I had been, I went to college, but I stayed home and helped my family with the kids that they still had in high school and stuff. And then I, I got married and I st- ran a business with my ex-wife and her family. And we sort of dabbled in some of our dreams in New York city, but we kept coming back to Scranton. Uh, New York city was only like an hour and 45 minutes away. And so we never really followed our dreams. And that was part, that was, I mean, we weren't being our authentic selves, either one of us. And we Mm -hmm. weren't following what we loved. So we definitely loved each other, but I was obviously gay. And she was interested in other aspects of uh, studies and career. And so anyway, divorce. And so I thought, Rochester. So I looked it up. I recently just said this on Twitter. I looked it up and they had a photo online of a waterfall in the middle of the city. And I said, Sure, that'll do. I mean, that was literally <laughs> my decision-making process because I was like, I have to get away from Scranton. You know, my mother was just very, very uh, dramatic about if I ever, my whole life, if I ever acted in any way, shape, or form towards the gay uh, avenue, you know, it was like, no, 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 no. You know, literally, she's when I came out to her, she was like, you don't want to touch somebody's pickle or put your pickle in somebody's dupa? I'm like, what is that even, mom? And she used yeah. those terms? Of course. You know, wow. it was just this. And and then uh, she was like, you know, you're, you have to carry on the family name, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to disown you. And my father did was, and, you know, he did spit in my face and they, they disowned <gasps> me for a period of time. Oh, wow. When I came out. So that process of, coming to Rochester, moving, and, and coming out all happened, and divorce all happened at the same time. And so I knew that my parents weren't really disowning me, but it was hard enough to come out. And then when I did, and it just felt like I, it, it sort of sealed the deal on what I felt as a child, like that they didn't mm. like who I was. I felt just completely unaccepted. Yes, I went home for holidays and things, um, but it was like panic and anxious and yeah. lots of lots of booze. On tenterhooks the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up finding a home in Rochester, and I reformed a family in Rochester. And mothers had a theme or a, um, a slogan that said, no one loves you like your mothers. And... I was a mama's boy and it was just this mom, this family kind of feeling at this bar and the owner was a drag queen and I'm a massive Tina Turner fan and she would perform as Tina Turner and she eventually, I, I consider her my drag mother. So she eventually became. Does she consider you her drag daughter? <laughs> she, we were all her. We were begrudgingly. All her, yeah, begrudgingly. We were all her children. We were all her children. She was very much the, um, you know, just a heavy, heavy, heavy smoker, heavy drinker. And she's like, you need to sit down and you need to make a dress right now. And I'm like, I don't want to make a dress. And then you're never going to be a drag queen, you know? And she, I'm like, I don't want to make a dress. I'll just buy dresses. I have a credit card. And she'd be like, no, you know. And so she made, she made me do it. Um, she made me do those types of things. And uh, she kept saying to me, like, stop trying to be pretty. You're a drag queen. You know, you're a man. You're just, you, you know, just be Kasha Davis. And she's the one who's named me 
misses Kasha Gox. Ah. Um, yeah. And so, so like adding the misses or like the whole name? No. So I guess I'll re- rewind a little. So I'd been going to mothers and uh, all the debauchery of, of nightlife was happening. <laughs> And eventually, on gay.com, I met a fellow named Steve, my now husband, and uh, after standing him up on the first time we were supposed to meet for <gasps> coffee, yes, bad Mrs. Kasha Davis, and mind you, at the time, you know, cell phones weren't necessarily a thing, and I... <laughs> Which makes it worse. <laughs> it makes it worse, so he was sitting there. I was... Um, Still, I was late at work, so I did leave him a message at home. But at the, you know, in the moment, he felt stood up, and he was. And so, but when he got home, he did get the message that I was running late. Could I reschedule? And he did. Thank God. <laughs> so anyway, we went and we saw a queen in uh, P Town in Cape Cod named Miss Richfield. And we saw her. And then I put together what I was experiencing at Mother's. I said to Steve at the time, I was like, I want to. I think I want to do drag because I, I thought of my theater background and I thought about what I know, what I knew of the family atmosphere of the performers at mothers. And I was like, I think I want to be a part of that. And he was like all, he was all in, you know? And so I named myself, I knew, uh, of the way to name yourself as first pet first street. And I, I wanted to pay homage to Scranton, to be honest. And to, my mother, because I was, you know, mama's boy, and she was definitely, she's very much, Miss, my mother comes out in, in Mrs. Kasha Davis, and in, let's just say, the shady kind of ways. <laughs> bitchy. When, when Mrs. Kasha Davis is bitchy, that's my mother. But also dark hair, Italian diva, overdressed, overbearing kind of mom. Um, so anyway, I w- went with Kasha, uh, is my Ukrainian heritage, and... Uh, my mother named all of the, the dogs, you know, Kasha, Tasha, Sheba. Um, and so we had, Kasha was my first dog. And she was an angry white poodle that only liked me. And I loved her. And she was very protective of me. And I just, just loved her. I mean, she would bite my father. And I just, I thought it was the funniest <laughs> thing. <laughs> you know, and she didn't like my friends. And I was like, I love her. You know, um, but she would snuggle up on my lap on the sofa. My mother's like, boy, that dog is yours. And so, Kasha. And then Davis, because I just thought it was funny. You know, it was just sort of like, sort of like, you know, Mrs. Smith. You know, it was like a just mm. a regular name. Because Kasha was so ethnic, we'll just say. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I had been dating Steve at the time. And uh, marriage wasn't legal yet, so we were just uh, partners. And Naomi, the the club perform, uh, owner and head performer, was like, Kasha, um, you are so funny because the strippers will be backstage getting naked. And all the other queens are over there, like, playing around with them and stuff. And I'm in the corner. I'm like, I'm a married lady. Oh, no. You know, I'm, I could look, but I don't touch. You know, I was doing all that and playing up that character. And so when they would announce everybody, they would say, Miss Pandora Box, Ms. Darren <laughs> And then he was like, and the married lady, Mrs. Kasha Davis. <laughs> she doesn't, she doesn't play around with the strippers, you know? And I'd be like, I thought it was hysterical, you know? Because then all of a sudden I was like, wow, I can include Mr. Davis. And originally we were like, well, Mr. Davis is just going to be a secret character that nobody ever sees. 
and you know kind of like you just see him from over the fence or type of thing mm-hmm. or you just see his hand in the shot or whatever but he's never really there um but anyway that's how that became and that and that and I, and I I didn't know how to I mean they taught me everything at that club with regard to drag so and, so then so before you were talking about it took you a while to kind of get to the point of wanting to do drag. Is that because of the stigma around drag as an art form? No. Um, I, like I said, I dated a drag queen. Um, I thought it was, I thought she was fascinating and I don't know. She just, you know, took command of the room and I was like, I love all that, you know? And, and this was back in Pennsylvania. And then, so I was, very intrigued by drag and I went to school for theater and I began to audition for some plays in Rochester because I was feeling very depressed from my divorce and I was feeling that I was not going to find a relationship like I had in my mind which was very much the heterosexual kind of stereotype of marriage and children and house Mm -hmm. and pool and and I was like, I'm, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It's all about like, you know, hookups and, you know, which was great. I mean, it's obviously I enjoyed that aspect of it, of the, my gay life as well, but I was thinking I'm not going to be able to find this relate type of relationship. Um, and so I was depressed and so not performing and just not real comfortable yet with my coming out experience. So I thought, well, you know what? I love theater and I went to school for theater and I'm working this job, which I like, but maybe if I fulfill that passion, well, I, I got cast in a play, but my work schedule, I was a director of a, of a call center. And so it was very unpredictable. I didn't just have a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. So if I worked some days from 8am till, you know, 8pm at night and then other days, you know, 11 to seven. And so I couldn't commit to the rehearsal schedule. And so I just didn't do it. I quit. And I was, you know, not performing and not performing and knowing that that was what I was born to do. I knew I was born to perform. I didn't know. I mean, ever since a child, I would sign my name as an autograph. Like I knew I was going to be doing something. And I went to psychics throughout the years as a kid. And they'd be like, you will be on stage, but first you're going to be around a lot of computers. And I'd be like, what? And, you know, and so I was, I was working in this call center on a lot of computers and, and, uh, nothing, nothing was connecting. And so when, when we went on that trip and we saw a character, Miss Richfield, 1981, look her up. She's fabulous. She had a character. She sang live. She had a backstory and the other gals, Pandora, Darian, Aggie, Ambrosia, Asia, all these other gals, Naomi, they were amazing lip sync, gorgeous divas. But there was nobody that had that story in Rochester. There was nobody that was like somebody who was a live singer, somebody who could have a whole history of, you know, what is there, what's the story about Mrs. Kasha Davis? So I could tell that story through my lip sync and I can tell that story through my hosting, but I could, and I could dress that and then eventually become you know, adding Mr. Davis to the storyline and, and still work. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have to get to the club until midnight or 11 o'clock. 
and the shows, you know, never start on time. So it's all late, late night stuff. There's no six o'clock or eight o'clock show. There's no rehearsal. It's my rehearsal time. There's no costume meetings. It's what I can schedule. So I was able to find this part-time outlet and still be able to work. And it was something that my partner, Steve, was very supportive of. So it was like everything came together. And what's great about Mothers, it was it was a family of queens and the owners who took you in like family. So I felt understood. I mean, when <laughs> when I would drink so much that I would fall down and slide under my car, they'd take my keys away. You know, um, when I was maybe a little bit overserved, you know, they they definitely would hug me and pull me to the side and be like, okay, you know, uh, and, and then jab you and tease you. And well, so, course, I mean, like, like, sisters. like sisters. And so, but, but then when I began to perform and wore tights that were four sizes too big, Darian, like Darian lakes, like those tights are too big for me. You have elephant ankles. What's going on girl, you know, um, or Aggie Dune who was another sort of drag mother type character in my life was say, Kasha, don't be afraid to try and look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, wow. Um, and so then how long, how long had you been in Rochester before you made that decision, like, I'm going to start trying drag? So I moved to here in 99, and then I didn't start drag until 2004. Oh, okay. So a number of years. And so yes, a number of years. So where then did you have personal relationships with those queens that you're talking about? I was a fan. Okay. Uh, I was a fan. I was a fan of uh, Aggie, Darian, and Bro- all of them. Um, and uh, we were regulars. Uh, we were myself and my two best friends, Alicia and and Sam. We we were sort of like, I felt like they were the aunts and we were the nieces and nephews, you know, and then Naomi was the mother and, you know, we would come to Sunday dinner, uh, which was really all alcohol. Um, and, uh, we would get dressed up to go out, you know, and we kind of sometimes had makeup on other times we would wear all camouflage. Um, and it was the quest for the evening to see who you're going to kiss, make out, you know, whatever. What was great is that, because it had that family, va- um, uh, you know, welcoming vibe, you had some straight guys that would come there too. So my friend Alicia would, she sometimes she'd meet a guy too. It wasn't a total waste of night for her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure it was always. Uh, I'm not sure they were always looking for women either. So it was like you know, it was, it was everything. Everything goes. Um, but yeah, so it was that. It was that that vibe and. Uh, and then that, that first time then, so when you like plucked up the courage, like I'm going to try drag, I'm going to do it. What was then, what were the steps following that? Like, were you just practicing at home or did you say to the girls, do you have any advice? Both. So I called the club owner who knew me and knew my, knew what good customer I was. Mm. <laughs> and I said, Hey, I, I, is, is there a night that I can, do drag and he was like oh yeah sure baby come on down on sunday <laughs> like it was literally like boom they were just like yeah you know put something on and th- there was no like 
audition. There was just, yes. And they knew how much I loved the shows, too. So they thought, this, this girl's a queen. This, this one's a queen already, you know. And so I then contacted Ambrosia Salad, who was that first character I talked about. And she was like, okay, uh, first things first. Are you ready for the politics of drag? Are you ready for, you know, this one's got this kind of, uh, you know, uh, reputation and status and the, the, the pay is zero dollars and you're only tips only and someday you might get paid and let me tell you, some of these queens make several hundred dollars a night plus tips and you will not, you know. It was all, and I was like, I didn't care. I just wanted to get on stage. And so Steve, my husband, and I selected, I wanted old school, you know, Annette Funicello. Um, I wanted uh, Ethel Merman. I wanted old Broadway music. And that was the kind of stuff that I rehearsed. And I had a song list and like four dresses. Some of it was maternity because I didn't know what I was buying. You know, I was just like, oh, that looks big. I'll buy it. Um, and, you know, a gown up to here. Mother of the Bride. You know, it was just, it was very matronly, Mother of the Bride. And we had, I had two wigs that I would rotate back and forth. And I did those types of characters. And I did Liza Minnelli. And that was it. <laughs> and but so was this, so was this within a week of, of asking you did your first show? It was either a week or two weeks. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, it was quick. And, and, and how long was the, like, the slot? How long was your gig? So we had to do two numbers. Wow. So I did my first song on stage was Lime Jello Marshmallow Cottage Cheese Surprise. It was very, <laughs> it was a very, you know, she's, she sings, Ladies, the minutes will soon be read today. The garden club and weaving class, I'm sure, have much to say. But next week is our culture night, our biggest, best event. And I've just made a dish for it. You'll all find heaven sent. It's my Lime Jello Marshmallow Cottage <laughs> Cheese Surprise. You know, and she's camp. Um, and so I had on, you know, white gloves with hairy arms. Red lipstick, <laughs> black flip flip wig, horrible shoes that you can tint for weddings, and this pantsuit, this lime lime pantsuit, and it was magical. I had so many friends come to support and tip, and they were just like, "It's a busy night." Oh, and Mr. Davis made posters that we can still find the <gasps> image of it. Yeah, it's like I had a towel on my head and I was in the shower. I, I had a little bit of eyeliner, <laughs> a little bit of lipstick, and lashes like without mascara. And I'm in the shower and I'm like, <gasps> like you caught me. I'm just taking a shower, you know. And it was just, we were so prepared. We had that. We brought posters up because at the time there's no social media. So we brought posters all around town. Mrs. Kasha Davis is making her debut. There was posters at the bar. The other queens were ripping them down. They're like, what's with the posters? Like, nobody does this. Like, who does she think she is? And I just, you know, I got myself, my friends mostly, you know, everybody to go. And it was a decent crowd. And the owner was like, this is amazing, you know. How, I, you know. How funny, like, um, most of the people, like, whenever I have a drag queen on the show and I, had, like, ask about their first time, it's always like, it was awful, it was terrible, it was, like, I was, I lost the words, I didn't know what I was doing, yeah. it was crap, but I got better. And you're like, it was amazing. <laughs> well, it was, okay, let me clarify. Uh, it, the pr Performing was amazing, I was rehearsed, I knew how to do that from theatre. 
I looked shit. I mean, I looked terrible. I mean, and I still don't look all that great. I mean, it's fine. Um, so I, yeah, looking back at some of the photos, we're just, we laugh. Um, but but the most important thing is like you came off stage and you felt like, yes, oh, I did it. I'm amazing. Yes. And, and it was, it was the great education of experimenting and trying things. Um, and like it was a time instance, when you didn't have to worry about people having a camera on their phone. There was no camera. <laughs> if there was, if there was a photo, eventually MySpace happened. And a couple of th- photos came up, but mostly you had to bring your camera, you know, and, um, Steve would be at every show. And eventually he was like, I can't go. Cause I, I started to get booked every Wednesday, Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And he's like, I can't go to all these shows. I have work. And I'm like, I do too, but I actually got to go in later. Cause if I was out late, I didn't have to really be in until like 11. So that's not so bad if you drank, you mm. know, um, and I drank and, um, but so I would do things like, you know, um, I drove all night, Cindy Lauper, oh, and classic. I would ride a bike into the bar, our daughter's bike, <laughs> with a pa- set a pink bike with a helmet, and like this, like really terrible, all these clothes from the Goodwill, like nothing. I did not have any good costumes, and I drove in, and it's like, you know, I drove all night, <laughs> and I'm rolling around like to get to you, and they're just like, she is crazy. And, um, but I would commit myself to the song and I was like, whatever happens, happens. And sometimes it was improvised and other times, you know, I sort of had some plans, but then, so Naomi did Tina Turner, I told you, and then Aggie would do Cher and they also did other lip syncs. And so they had a party house gig planned and then Naomi couldn't do it. And so Aggie was like, what about this Kasha? I like her. And I was like, to do what? And they're like impersonations. And I'm like, oh, I only do Liza Minnelli. And she's like, you like Tina Turner? It's just as easy. Just put on, you know, I was like, wait a minute. So, you know, yes, I was obsessed with Tina Turner and I, I danced around in my basement as a child from 1983 on, but I don't know. Can I perform her on stage? So we did these, this impersonation show together and that started only a couple months after I started doing drag. And so she coached me on, on different characters I could do. And, and we did this, this impersonation show. Now we still do it on occasion. I mean, it's, it's been since 2004. So what is that? Mm. 17, 18 years. A lot of years. A lot, (laughs) a lot of years. So, so that, that experience came from mothers. Um, and then, so, so what other, what other um, celebrities went into your repertoire? So my go-tos that I would do that I would actually work to impersonate that were closer to impersonation would be Tina Turner, Liza Minnelli, Bette Midler, um, and then like sort of the Ethel Mermans, um, Annette Funicello. And... She would do Celine Dion, um, Cher, uh, sometimes Mariah Carey. Um, but then we would do, oh, and like, uh, oh, I can't think of her name. I'll think of it. Uh, <laughs> but then we would do like, you know, camp, like a Dolly Parton. We, were, we looked nothing like Dolly Parton, but, you know, <laughs> clearly she had big boobs, big hair. Uh, 
or you know uh, funny takes on song on Katy Perry songs or or different things like that. So that we would have, you know, she ended up doing Gaga, and I think I did Katy Perry more seriously towards the end, uh, the last couple shows. But then once we got, you know, we would have five or six of the ones that were closer to impersonation with a quirk, but then there was just goofy aspects. And then we were hosting in between, so you had that kind of experience as an audience member. But we would label ourselves a quick change comedy impersonation show. <laughs> so it was more about, wow, you just went from Liza Minnelli to Tina Turner while the other one was performing, so you had four minutes. And what did we do? We changed our outfit. We would have a dresser. We would change our outfit and our hair. And because you change your facial expressions, you would wear general makeup, but you change your facial expressions, maybe your lip color. And the audience was like, oh, and her makeup was completely different. She changed her makeup in four minutes. <laughs> you know, and so they thought that um, you powder your face, maybe if you're sweaty, but that was it. And so because your facial expressions are different, somehow it just looks different with a different wig and, and everything else. Enjoy. So, so that was a really cool experience that came from mothers. Um, and so when, so when you first decided, I'm going to do drag, this is what I want to do. And Ambrosia sat you down and said, <laughs> like, uh, you need to watch out for this. You need to watch out for this. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. Was she saying like the, you know, the scene's quite competitive and people are going to be bitchy and you're going to have to overcome some of their attitudes. Yes. She was very much like, watch out for the scene, watch out for the competition. The girls are going to try to, she was sisterly in that she's like, they're going to try to give you advice, but sometimes the advice is shady. shady. Yeah. And then other queens uh, will gravitate to becoming like your bestie, but don't trust them. Um, and, And so did it play out like that? Eh, no, <laughs> I don't necessarily, I think she was just trying to give me a realistic view of, it's not as fan, fantastical as you might imagine, Ed. So she was you like, know, this- hey, I need to tell you something, drag queens can be bitchy. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and just. Just, just mind yourself. And also, um, you know, there was a lot of other extracurricular partying that would be going on. Um, it's, it wasn't just drinking. And of course, you know, I this is like whatever. I mean, I've been in nightclubs for years. I know that what happens in the bathroom and this, that, and the other, you know. And so, fine. You know, I mean, that's just the nightclub scene. So, um, but I knew that there was this cast of, you know, there was the A-listers and then there's the B-listers, the ones who wanted to get on the, the popular nights. And I would get an occasional booking on the popular nights, but I would be consistently on the other nights to kind of work my way up the ladder and the totem pole, however you want to call mm. it. And and uh, I knew that if I aligned myself with Darian, Pandora, Ambrosia, and Aggie, that I would be set up for success because I also knew enough about theater that I was not a threat to them, that my character and my uh, persona and song selection was not coming. I'm, I'm not coming for, you know, if you've got the share impersonator, I'm not going to try to do shit. You know, I knew enough 
and I had enough confidence in my performance ability to say that th- a show might have a lead character, but then there is somebody who comes on as as another character and can steal the show and be memorable, but maybe not be the lead. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I knew that I knew that, and I was like, oh, I, I am, I have a need. there's a need in this show for this campy housewife that's not being fulfilled. Nobody's doing that. Everyone's trying to be fierce or uh, sexy or comedic, but nobody's camp. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, this, you know, it, and, and then it, it would, it would round out the show as something that was different. And, you know, you're not going to see somebody, I mean, I couldn't believe sometimes the girls, one would come out and do let's get loud. And then the other one, three songs later is doing let's get loud. We just heard the song. It's okay. Uh, but how about you pick another one out of your dusty CD bag? Um, that made no sense to me because, you know, or, well, this is the new top 40 song. We're all fighting for it. Okay. We don't need to hear it six times tonight. You know, the audience isn't coming for that. And certainly Naomi wouldn't allow it to happen, but you know, I learned those, those aspects, the theatrical aspects of putting on the show. And, you know, and we had another queen that we would, oh my gosh. So Darian and I would be hosting the show. We're sitting over at the bar hosting and this queen, her name is Annie Rexick. She's backstage getting ready to perform. And we're talking to the microphone, but we're making all the patrons go outside. So they're going outside into the street and we're closing the door and the music starts and she comes out into the, onto the stage and nobody's in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where did everybody go? And we're hiding down behind the bar. You know, uh, another time Annie Rexick was uh, supposed to come out on stage and she had this big dance number prepared and we piled up all the chairs in front of the and so when she came out she had to crawl through the chair another another time she would go on stage and everybody i mean sometimes they would have chairs in the audience like i think sunday nights was more like a cabaret night so if they had chairs in the audience we had everybody face the other way and like act like they were facing her (laughs) and like cheer her on and she you know so you know, and so, so Annie Lennox, Annie, Annie Lennox, Annie Rexit had a, a breakdown and has never been she seen had a breakdown. Is that right? Oh my gosh, we did a duet together. You know the Michael Jackson song where where he's like, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? So she came out and got shot and fell to the ground, and I came running out, and I just the whole time I kept singing, Annie, are you okay? And I'm trying to wake her up, and they're all yelling, "Wake up, Annie!" You know, like camp right um another time somebody started to say that she was a bird so they would feed her pretzels and she would eat them off the floor i mean (laughs) so she was the butt of everyone's joke yeah (laughs) well and she loved the great thing was that she loved it and she did she did some really great and she still performs she performs now somewhere in um she's in south i can't remember where virginia or somewhere i think but um so she she did some amazing stuff too i mean she would do she was one of the first that would come out and do Sinead o'connor bald and we were like (gasps) you know uh (laughs) you know but because of the club was so much into the glamour with darian and aggie and pandora that that was shocking Mm. but like pandora when when madonna's uh would have a new song she would get a limousine and arrive in a limousine with her people. You know, the, uh, the song Music. Mm-hmm. So she had the fur, she had the, the cowboy hat. The limo came, she arrived. She, you know, 
came in with her entourage and uh, started the song. Like, how fun is that? You know, like for this small city, and you have this like you know, kind of entrance like that. Hmm. Um, um, it sounds as though you quickly made your way into that inner circle, and we're like the um, royalty of mothers. <laughs> Well, so this particular group performed previously together for years. So it was difficult to break into that to that group. I was not an A-lister for a long for a couple of years, but I would get a guest spot. They would be like, "Well, we have a Friday available for you." That was the busiest night. Uh, we have a Friday available for you. Can you, you know, open the show or whatever? I'd be like, "Sure, whatever." Um you got twenty dollars more in pay as as a as a as a B lister, and um, you know you had more people, so there's more tipping opportunity. But I knew enough to bef- to befriend them and to to not be like competitive with them, and so it did take it took a couple years, and now I mean, and so they had they had previous relationship as a as a cast from another bar. That bar closed called Marcella's and then from Marcella's they all gravitated to this club mothers and then that's essentially when I moved to to town so I didn't know anything about this Marcella's as a matter of fact when I moved to town I think that weekend that club closed oh wow yeah timed that well (laughs) she's in town close the bar Um, don't let her in don't let her in so mothers was just opening or not opening was 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 existing without that big of a show and then the naomi sort of lured everyone over eventually and um then they started to build these shows and uh because of their tenure from other clubs over the years they were just you know darian pandora aggie ambrosia drag royalty i mean they were and still remain the names that that people at the grocery store, if you ask someone, "Did you do you know a drag queen?" They're likely to say one of those names. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Darien Lake won Best Drag Queen for years for the local newspaper. Uh, they had a little, you know, the local indie arts newspaper. She'd win, and and then eventually, uh, breaking into that group, um, I got to win it a couple times. <laughs> So what's this about not so being like, competitive then? Oh, well. Yeah. I mean, it's just a different kind of, you know, I I even said when Aggie and I would do our night, our um, impersonation shows, we would go out on stage at the beginning and I would say, you know, I'm so glad to be her Ethel, you know, Lucy and Ethel from I Love Lucy. And her support, you know, her support hose. I'm her, you know, I'm her, I'm her trusty push-up bra. You know, that was the the joke. But I knew I was very important to the success of our shows because, as I joked about earlier, I'm, I will make sure that the show happens. I, I will make sure that we get booked. I will make sure that we get paid. I will make sure that we get rebooked. And then Mr. Davis will make sure. And, and for all those years, he did all the lights and sound. and So we took care of a lot of that business and technical aspect of the shows which is so important if you want to do more than just a spot number mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at a club so if you wanted to make a career out of it you you have to be able to hustle 
hustle and have a business sense, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's a constantly, it's a competitive, uh, industry and it's constantly evolving. I mean, it seems like now given our circumstances with the pandemic, it's like, who's got, who's the next queen with a podcast, you know, uh, who's the next queen with a, um, online show, you know? Mm. Um, and so if we go back to mothers, do yeah. you remember hearing about it closing? Uh, so, well, I, when it was closing, it was because of the fact that Naomi was very sick. Okay. And because they were no longer going to... Nobody was buying it. Um, they, they were closing the club, and they had, a, they had a final performance night that I performed at. It, I believe it's on YouTube somewhere. And uh, I did a Liza Minnelli song at the time. I don't remember what one it was but uh it was very very sad and naomi then disappeared and and we don't know if she stayed in town or if she went to be with family elsewhere and we never saw her partner brian as well he sort of stayed away and we did a fundraiser for him to help with funeral expenses and things but i don't know i don't even know I don't, I can't find Brian, who is Naomi's partner, online or anything. They've disappeared. Oh, He's disappeared. Yeah. So I don't know anything about, I know there might be some other people I can reach out to, but um, I'm not even sure if they're necessarily in touch. So it was sad. Oh, it was sad. very, very sad. <clears throat> what was that feeling then on the last night for you? Oh, we were all in tears. And uh, because it was, the closing of the bar, but it was also saying goodbye to Naomi. Mm. You know, it's one thing when a bar, when a, when a business closes like that, but when it was, you know, she was visibly ill and standing saying goodbye. I mean, I have a couple of her costumes she gave each of us. And then because we were both big Tina Turner fans, I'm getting a little emotional. She, um, she gave me these, framed Tina Turner, like one is from What's Love Got to Do With It, and the other one's um, from uh, Mad Max the hmm. movies. So I have those in our office. And so we have like some, you know, old uh, Hollywood kind of uh, celebrities on the walls in our office, and then we have those too. And so it was, it was like, it was a f- celebration, but it was also almost like a funeral service that, mm. that, that day. And, um, and it, it was jam packed. I mean, mother's was, was great is because it also had, you know, it had its, it had its night where it's night where it was the corner bar when there was, you know, 15 people. And then it's night when there were several hundred people. Uh, it wasn't massive. And so it had that where everybody was real close together and you kind of had to be, you know, rubbing up against each other uh, to get up to the stage to tip. And then the dance, you know, in, in between the sets of the show, they would have the dance floor feel. But again, it was hot and everybody was close. And so when they would have those really, really busy nights, the, the line would go around the corner. So it created all of that excitement as well to, to go. I mean, it was, there were a couple big, big dance clubs in town, but they never, they would get busy, but it was never that feel because you know, mm. their capacity was so much bigger. 
And so I think that made it special too. And, uh, you know, they had the nights when they would do other, uh, just all different themes, you know. Um, you talked about before that a lot of Mrs. Kasha Davis is based on your mother. Yes. What happened then with your relationship with your parents over time? And has your mum ever met Kasha? Okay. So my character of Mrs. Kasha Davis is the culmination of my mother and my grandmother. grandmother. My grandmother, uh, of my mother's mother. And then my father's mom. Mm -hmm. uh, so the two grandmothers and my mother. So my mother's mother was a whistler in vaudeville days. Uh, she used to host shows and she would perform uh, in the 1930s and 40s in, in vaudeville shows and on a radio show. And that, that, just whistling? She would whistle. What, how impressive was this whistle? Oh, it, apparently it was very, it was very impressive. So she was just a gorgeous, tall, glamorous woman. And she would host the show and she had a band and the band would play and she, instead of singing, she would whistle. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, but then she would say, you know, and then she would host it and she'd be so, so sort of a drag, <laughs> you know, up next we have whatever performer and, uh, and we have her old contracts and things. And it's very oh, fascinating. Wow. And, uh, so when I, and then she became a beautician uh, because she had my mom and my uncle and she was traveling with them and they were, and she, they, they would be on the road and going from club to club and they saw an accident and it scared her being out late at night with the alcohol and the drinking and driving. And so she changed careers on the, on a dime and changed to hair. And so she had her salon and she would whistle when nobody was there and, uh, tell me all these stories about, the, the performances and she performed at Radio City Music Hall oh, once. Wow. Uh, yeah, like so she, she was just, and she would show me her costumes. And, and did she teach jewel, you how to jewelry. whistle? No, what? she never really, I mean, she whistled. I mean, we were just all like, what is so great about this whistle? But she was, she didn't do, she didn't just whistle all the time. She would whistle when she was like, it was almost sad. Like she would whistle when she was alone. And if you caught, if we caught her, she'd stop. It was like she didn't follow her dream. Hmm. And that's what I kind of felt like. I was like, oh. And so she remained glamorous, of course. And then she taught my mother to be glamorous. So these, these overdressed ladies for every occasion uh, were, were in my life. And I would go to my grandmother's beauty salon and watch her do hair and makeup and then in the mornings I'd watch my mother do her makeup. And then my other, my father's mother was sort of the 1950s housewife where she, everything was perfect. We set everything up. And then once my grandfather would go to work, she'd pull out paper dolls. She's like, you play with dolls. I'm going to drink some wine and wear my tube top and smoke cigarettes out in the sun. And I was like, she's got like two lives going on here. I loved the whole like dual, like, and then the minute we got close to coming home from work time, she put my paper dolls away. Uh, get back, get herself, you know, back in, in, in order and she'd have a lovely dinner and we'd have nice TV and, and, and <laughs> grandpa, grandpa didn't know a thing. So that was kind of fascinating mm. to me, like this sort of, anyway, so fast forward, 
mama's boy obsessed with all these ladies um the men in my family were always trying to make me be less feminine and i then uh for years would perform and my mother would be fine with whatever if i was in ballet if i dressed in drag for a show whatever that was never an issue but when i came out it was an issue being gay was not acceptable um so she never saw me perform and she passed away in 2011 and um she was sick at one point in the hospital she had she had all kinds of complications and um the one situation was i was sitting at her bedside and holding her hand and she said what have i done with my life and again it made me think of my grandmother of like Ooh, that's not good that's not a, something you want to say and um and it was sort of that experience i had pre drag race where i was like i can't just be a director of a telemarketing company. I'm an artist, I'm a performer. This is what I'm meant to do. And I'm not sure if it's theater or drag, but I know what's on stage. And I know I have messages to tell, stories mm -hmm. to tell. And so I was inspired essentially after her passing to do just that. And then my father hadn't seen Let's face it, you know, I was on Drag Race, so my lo the local paper, I was on the front page in Scranton because they were just like, she's a star, and her name is Ed Polkett. <laughs> and my parents were like, you know, so they know that saw. Name. <laughs> yeah, they saw, they saw this, but they sort of just, you know, they would ignore it. It was denial. Um, <sighs> that... Yeah, so they didn't, they didn't celebrate any of that until... My, so my mother passed away and my father and I began to mend a relationship and we began to, I mean, he was the first one to call me a fairy when I was a kid to, to, to make fun of my voice and my gestures. And, and so we realized we don't like each other and this isn't good either. Um, and so in my sobriety, and in time, we began to build a relationship. And I, <laughs> I always laugh before I tell this story because it's just so adorable. I was booked in Pennsylvania in Scranton at a Toyota dealership for a drag show. <laughs> to help them move units, is it? Yeah. Well, there's just, so it was the kickoff for the show Kinky Boots. Okay. And they had the, the person who was a part of the committee was putting on this the, this fundraiser and they you know they wanted mrs kasha davis because i'm uh, you know a celebrity drag queen in their mind from scranton pennsylvania who made it you know so bring her back home so i do so i go to visit my mother's grave and i have this gut instinct to go see my father I go visit my father and we're better you know we're better um uh i, I was sober we're closer uh, i was owning some of the some, some of the wreckage on my side of the street. It wasn't all his mm. fault in terms of our relationship, as you find out in life. And so therefore, uh, he says, I see that you have a show tonight. I, I'm very proud of you that it's at the Toyota dealership. <laughs> and uh, what time is the show? And he 
was alluding to coming to the show and I'm like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm in drag. He's like, yeah, I saw the paper. I know you're in drag. What time is the show? And I said, six o'clock. He's like, okay, I'll be there. And I was like, I immediately like was like crapping my pants. Like this is not happening. We went to the hotel uh, with my friend who came with me and she and I were sitting there and I was freaking out. I didn't want to drink, but I was like, I need, I, 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 I don't even know how to speak. Like I can't imagine him actually coming to see the show. So lo and behold, we're going to get ready for the show. I'm in the dressing room, which is the sales department. Um, he walks <laughs> around the corner to see me and his first, he was shocked because I resemble my mother. Yeah. And he says, wow, Eddie, you're beautiful. And it was so beautiful to hear him say that. And then it wasn't a joke and it wasn't sarcastic and it wasn't mean. And then he watched the show and I sang live throughout the whole show about my mother and uh, some of it funny, some of it, you know, more uh, sentimental. I held his hand at one point. There's all photographs and video of this. And then it was like this gift from the universe. Like what is happening? Like how is, how are we having all this forgiveness and joy? And so I post a picture about it on social media and then in time, he passes away relatively shortly after that. And we were a part of the whole, we were there with him for all, for those several weeks. And, um, but then I find when we're cleaning out his house, we find he had print, somebody printed out my post from social media. And it, I talk about how I was amazed that my dad and I had this moment and, uh, he replies to his friend, yes, that's my son, Eddie, and I'm so proud. Aww. Yeah. So it was just, it was this moment like that I could never have planned. I couldn't, it couldn't have, it was so accepting. And I can't even believe I'm saying those words right now because we just did not mix. I mean, we tried... And then we would argue, and it would get physical, it would get verbal, and it, we and it was just it always seemed to be centered around my me as a person, my uh, not being good enough because of, mm. of my feminine qualities, so being gay. And um, so, I mean, talk about just like thank you universe, thank you mom, thank you dad. And, uh, and so now I tell that story just for multiple reasons. I mean, it's a sobriety story. It's an acceptance story. It's a forgiveness story. It's a powerful story about hope and that relationships can, can change and heal. And I mean, both, both parties had to put in the work. But isn't that like incredible? The, uh, him seeing you in drag is almost when he saw you for yeah. the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the combination of it, I laugh every time of it being in a Toyota dealership. I mean, that's, <laughs> he had Toyotas, you know, he loved his car and he's like, they're good people. Maybe they'll give you a discount. Like he was convinced that at that moment that not only was, did he see, me eddie but he was like you're actually good um and and funny and his there were his brother who he hadn't spoken to in 
years, I'm saying at least 15 years, came to that show and they built a little relationship before he passed away. He was at that show. And so to see his sibling, to see other people in the community that he knew, people that I went to school with, college uh, professors, they're celebrating too, helped, I'm sure. Mm, mm, it just mm. helped him to be like, oh, well, boy, if I'm not accepting Eddie, then I'm, I'm out of the loop too. You know, like, mm. so, um, but then of course, after that, it became, now you need to be charging more money and, uh, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden he's an expert. I was like, oh my gosh, you know. Well, I mean, like getting onto Drag Race, that's, that's something, but performing at a Toyota dealership, that's like the pinnacle of your career. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is something that's, you know, that that I hope I never forget. It was such a beautiful moment. And, you know, uh, I suffered and had a lot of pain not feeling accepted. And mm -hmm. uh, to be able to have that. And I was just feeling, well, maybe uh, when he passes away, I'll just attend the funeral. And, uh, you know, this was earlier in life. Uh, you know, I'll just respectfully attend the funeral. I mean, I'm not even sure if I'll be in the will. Like, I was being so dramatic, too. Yeah. But I had right to feel that way. Um, and uh, so that was a shocker. And I think it was, in my belief and in my recovery process, I think it was sort of a gift in sobriety. Yeah, a huge gift. I mean, this is the thing. So this is what I was going to say at the top of our conversation when we were talking about you first moving um, to Rochester and like figuring yourself out and finding yourself. There's this kind of, there's two things going on. There's this like trauma, this escaping trauma, I mean, for want of a better term, and then this liberation. Mm -hmm. And like, there's this sheer excitement at the same time as this kind of process of recovery. Um, and that's like a really confusing and a weird time. It was. <laughs> uh, and if I go through my gratitude, you know, the, the biggest dream wasn't necessarily to be on drag race or to perform where I've performed and to do what I've done. It was, to have children and so to have Steve and our daughters in our life and you know for them to be 26 and 28 and to say hey do you want to go for dinner like to be interested in spending time with us because you know at that age it's sort of like ugh, mom and dad you know it doesn't matter what relationship you have but that they want to actually you know hang out go to dinner spend time uh <laughs> that is special. And mm. I mean, that was my dream, you know, and that remains my dream. And that's what I'm most grateful for is that I have that, that experience and that, uh, those relationships. Now, um, I, I feel like I'm a, a big old open book. So I share the rest of this, the experiences and the trauma because I know that no matter what, how you identify, in life, we go through those things. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, gay, straight, gender, sexuality, whatever. Uh, it just people in life go through uh, tough times and they may 
try to go around search certain situations or they may anesthetize like I did with alcohol and the way to go through it is to go through it and to 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 be able to share my experience and my story uh, isn't more isn't to be like oh look what happened to me it's more so to say that this is the path that I went through and maybe you can identify something in that story and if you can there is another side. There is a way out. Mm, mm. There is a way through it. Um, so. So with all of that in mind, if we could travel back in time 20 years to when Ed had first moved to Rochester, 20 odd years. If you had the opportunity to talk to him and have a conversation with him, what advice would you give? Be patient. I wanted to control things and make things happen immediately. Um, I think patience and uh, sort of uh, the two words that come to my three words that come to my mind are patience, acceptance, and gratitude. So, patience. Don't try to control and rush things. Accept the process. You know, I think whether it's performing or coming out or getting a divorce, I mean, you don't just get divorced and the next day you're happy. It doesn't matter whether you want the divorce or not. Like there's a, there's some mourning. There's some, there's a process that happens there. Um, and so there's some acceptance for where you are in that moment. And if you don't feel those feelings and you try to avoid them, they're just going to be prolonged at some point and they're going to, they're going to come out and manifest in another way. And then just gratitude for the moment. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I look back at some of those stories and they're just some of the best moments. I mean, uh, trying to figure out my finances and selling my CDs to be able to keep the lights on in my apartment uh, was fun. When people still bought CDs. When like. people still bought, I mean, you know. And you then, tried to sell your CDs now, you'd get nothing. Exactly. And <laughs> so I remember my friend Alicia and I, we would go out and she's like, all right, so how much do you need? And I would be like, this much for... The, the bill and she's like well but if we sell these other cds and we'd be putting out cds that like i don't really want to sell. i mean i had i had such a big music collection and she was like i'm like i don't really want to sell that one yet and she's like if you sell these you'll be able to pay your light bill but then if you sell these we can go to mothers tonight sold <laughs> you know i mean i did I, I was like fine uh so we would go to these CD shops and... and uh, but you didn't sell your Ethel Merman disco album, did oh, you? Oh, I still have it. Oh, good, good. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. And it's just ridiculous. It's just so... <laughs> she's so ridiculous. And I have to tell you, like, oh, like, that is a character. Because it's not really that specific, except that she's, like, you know a fun one to play because you're just always singing, you know, and she, it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't have to sound good. You just sort of have to belt and look like a mom, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and you don't have to cinch when you're here as no, well. It's, it's, it's all that. Did you ever go to Mothers? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook with the username KAndersonMusic and share your photos and stories and tell me what you got up to. And whilst you're at it, go and give Kasha some love on Instagram. Her user profile name is Mrs. Kasha Davis. 
Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there, and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, Well Groom Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right now, on all streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told people who you think might be interested in uh, giving it a little listen too. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces.